Welcome to Pushing the Limits, the show that helps you reach your full potential with your host, Lisa Tarmati, brought to you by lisatarmati.com. Welcome back to the show. This week I have an exciting episode with a clinical sleep physiologist, Jez Morris, who's been a friend of the family for years. And we've actually been in business together. We had a hyperbaric oxygen therapy clinic. But today we're going to be talking about sleep apnea, what it is, what the risks are involved when you have sleep apnea, how to assess it, the symptoms and so on. This is a really, really important topic. It's so important that, you know, I don't believe that my mum would be alive if we hadn't picked up that she had sleep apnea. So this is a very interesting episode to learn all about sleep, what it does for your body. And it's a really fantastic interview, so I hope you enjoy the show with Jez Morris. Um, just a reminder, too, I have my new book, Relentless, out, which is available on my website. Um, it tells a story, and part of that story uh, from bringing her back uh, from a major aneurysm, uh, a part of that rehabilitation journey was uh, diagnosing her with sleep apnea and dealing with that. So it's really pertinent to today's topic. Um, I am currently working on a brain rehabilitation course that I'm going to be offering to people since the release of my mum's book and the story of her um, incredible, amazing comeback journey um, from being not much over a vegetative state to being now fully functioning again um, and fully healthy. Um, I have been inundated with requests for people wanting help with brain rehabilitation, whether it's strokes, dementia, Alzheimer's, uh, TBIs, concussions, and so on. So I'm in the in the throes of making that course because uh, you know, I just can't deal with so many one-on-one. Um, so look out for that. It's going to be available hopefully within the next couple of months if I can get my A into G. Um, and really looking forward to sharing that with the world as well on the back of this book. So right now, let's go over to Jess Morris and learn all about sleep apnea. Well, hi everyone, Lisa Tamati here, back at Pushing the Limits, so thank you for being with me again. Today I have a friend of mine who uh, is a sleep physiologist, a clinical sleep physiologist, Jez Morris. How are you doing, Jez? I'm doing well, Lisa, yourself? I'm oh, very, very good. Now, um, Jez and I have a bit of a history together. Um, I'm, uh, he, when, when my mum had a stroke, and everyone knows that she had an aneurysm and a stroke a few years ago, um, and I was doing battle with the hospital because they wanted a sleep apnea test done and I couldn't get one done, um, save for going to my friend Jez, who is a sleep physiologist, and saying, Jez, can you come and help me, please? Can we do a test? Um, we did that um, slightly against the rules at the hospital at the time, wasn't it, Jez? Yeah. But, uh, we came back with severe sleep apnea uh, with oxygen levels at the worst point at around 70% during the night, which is pretty disastrous. So I'm going to talk to you today with uh, Jez about um, sleep apnea, what it is, what you need to be aware of, and we're also going to go into a new cardiac uh, system that he's got there that's going to be really interesting. So Jez, firstly, thank you for helping me back then. Um, That's my pleasure. It was, um, I don't know if my mum would be sitting here today um, healthy and well if it wasn't uh, for you coming in and doing a sleep assessment, it's that important. And this is why the subject is really important to me to get out there and to let people know about this. So Jess, can you just tell me a little bit your background um, and then, you know, what is sleep apnea? Okay, my background is actually in anaesthetic technology. I used to work as an anaesthetic technician here at at BASE. 
Um, and as the years went by, I got approached by a colleague of mine, the ENT surgeon, David Talbot, who was had a real interest in sleep um, apnea because of the upper airway, and asked me if I could help him with regards to treatment. And the, the relationship developed, and I got really interested in this area because it was so fascinating that eventually um, we set up a primary-based sleep clinic that then sort of spread a bit, and there's, there's quite a few around the country. Mm. Um, because sleep is something uh, we all take for granted in some respects, but it actually uh, has a significant role within uh, normal health. Huge. So that, that's, that's how I started in this field, and I'm still doing it. 18 years later. Yep. And you've, uh, so you've had a series of clinics right throughout New Zealand at one stage. And um, now sleep apnea is, what is it defined as specifically? So, how, you know, people hear this word, but they don't often know what the heck it means. Okay. So sleep apnea is a, a condition that has pretty set out rules. It's basically pauses in breathing um, during sleep. Uh, for a number of reasons. Um, it affects about 2 to 7% of the population. However, that's with moderate to severe. Um, basically, uh, what we talk about now is sleep-disordered breathing because we know there's a range of respiratory sleep issues affecting mm-hmm. the patient. So sleep apnea itself is fundamentally, you can tell, because if you've got obstructive sleep apnea, which is the main one, it's snoring. Mm-hmm. Patients who snore—it's a—it's a classic symptom. So all sleep apnics, obstructive sleep apnics, will snore, but wow. not everybody who snores has obstructive sleep apnea. Uh-huh. So okay, is- so that's the key. So snoring is is like um, a pain in a joint. If you're a runner or or mm-hmm. a sports person, if you get a pain in your knee, you don't tend to ignore it. Yeah, you want to know what's happening because yeah. it's an abnormal process. Right. Snoring is an abnormal process and is a symptom of something. It could be benign, it may not. So we actually say that up to about 20% of the population will suffer from pathological snoring or issues related to snoring. And that's the the key here. So if you snore to start with, you really should just get it checked out. We know that snoring gives you a higher chance of developing high blood pressure. Mm -hmm. Um, and from there, high blood pressure can lead to other cardiac and physiological issues. Absolutely, um, yeah. So that's that's where we start. Okay. So the most common is obstructive sleep apnea. Then we move into things like central sleep apnea. That's which what is mum poor, had, isn't it? That's what mum had, yeah. Okay. Because basically, if we see these conditions, there's lots of reasons why we'll see central sleep apnea. Uh, we see it in severe cardiac problems, and basically it's a miscommunication where you just physically stop breathing. So obstructive apnea is the is the airway physically shutting off, yeah? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get this jerking movement of patients who have got it until mm-hmm. they <laughs> breathe. Central sleep apnea is a pause, just a stop in breathing. Wow. So they will be breathing quite normally, then they stop go silent, there's no effort to breathe, nothing. Um, and you can see it for a number of reasons. In your mum's case, it was due to a stroke, yeah, uh, that, that caused her to stop breathing. But we see it in, in neurological conditions. We see it in uh, Chen Stokes breathing as a common cause of central apnea. 
change stokes is a word that sort of worries people you scared the heck it's out of me bit, when i heard that yes. yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's what we tend to see in the pre pre-mortal Yes. issue so just yeah. before people die they go exactly. into this chain stoking mm. however there's 31 reasons we see or more that we can see chain stoking yeah dehydration um heart conditions all sorts of things because it's not it's necessarily no, mortal. No, no, it's, 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 <laughs> a, it's a meta, metabolic condition is, is is why we get chain stoked so anything that can cause a metabolic issue can cause chain stokes yeah wow. yep and this is this waxing and waning of, of the respiratory pattern instead of a nice smooth process. Which Has it what... got a particular sound to it? So um, people, you know, hear their partners yes. or <laughs> Yes. It's usually it's it's a form of hyperventilation. So you'll see the patient sort of get deeper and deeper and deeper and then uh-huh. they'll wane off again and then flatten out. So it's oh. uh, people people refer to it sometimes as like a death rattle because they hear uh, yeah okay yeah yeah and that is a scary scary word so that's and so that happens when you've got a central problem um it can happen sleep central sleep apnea can be caused by different so chain stokes is one part one style of central apnea mm-hmm. yeah um some people just physiologically stop breathing, yeah, because of a, a stroke or a head injury so or a neurological condition. Something in the brain that's been affected by the stroke, so a blood supply to a particular gland or a particular part of the, of the yeah, brain? Primar- primarily, yeah, neurological, yeah, primarily, yeah. Okay. Um, all right, so that's two of them. Is there, any, is there a third variation? Oh, there's a, there's a few, few other ones. We've, a few got hy- <laughs> We've got hypoventilation. Mm-hmm. which is um, a reduction of breathing of at least 50% in the, in the volume of breath we're taking uh-huh. with a subsequent um, reaction. So in other words, your, your oxygen level starts to drop or you physiologically wake up, yeah? Uh, hyperventilation in itself, we, I mean, everyone will stop breathing or underbreathe a certain amount. So up to about five times an hour, we're not going to stress too much about it from a... From a a risk perspective but hyperventilation we're seeing more and more because like obstructive sleep apnea one of the, the main causes of this is is weight obesity um, yeah obesity is is you know i mean again we in, within healthcare i know that people feel that we push the weight question a lot but obesity with good is reason. a significant um health issue that, yep. that we're not a, we, we don't seem to be successfully addressing yeah um so you've then got hyperventilation syndromes, you've got obesity hyperventilation syndromes that can be significant uh, detrimental to long-term health. Yeah, okay. And, and this is in a bit of a, um, you know, a, a, a circle because once, yes. you're, once you're obese and then you have this, yes. then you'll get more obese because then yeah. you're... <laughs> you know, I mean, there's, there's, there's a big, big connection between things like uh, leptin levels and stuff that control appetite. Exactly. Um, Especially in, in sleep fragmentation. Yeah. So theoretically, you mean the worse you sleep, the hungrier you are, because at the end of the day, that's how we function as as a survival mechanism as a, isn't as it? a building. Yeah. If we're yeah. feeling low on energy, we tend to eat to get fuel to feel energetic. Unfortunately, a lot of the foods that we migrate to when we're feeling like that tend to be the high fat. Um, snacky type foods so in a lot of cases people who are who are significantly overweight may not eat big meals but they eat a very a lot of very small high fat 
mills, um, which compounds the issue. Yeah, and that's leptin and ghrelin as being a part of that equation. Which yeah. Are, yeah, so your satiation mechanisms aren't quite as good. And, of course, when, you, when you're not sleeping well, I mean, there's, there is a whole lot of knock-on effects, uh, which I've talked about on a couple of episodes on the podcast. So it, it all starts to tie into to each other and has well, huge impacts on your, your mental health, your physical health, your brain, you know, your cognition, everything. Yeah, well, what we tend to see in people who, let's say sleep apnea, because that's what we're really pushing here, obstructive sleep apnea, these patients will, first of all, go to bed. They'll then start to sleep, start to snore. So sleep in itself is a very complex process. People always think you're awake, you're asleep, that's it. It's not. We talk, we talk, in, uh, we, we talk about sleep architecture, how your sleep is structured. Mm-hmm. So for the first seven minutes or so, stage one sleep, that's the time you're getting comfortable. Um, your eyes are closed. It's not true sleep. It's that like pre-sleep sort of process. Then, then we're supposed to, to drop into stage two, which is what we define as true sleep. It's when you actually mm-hmm. go to sleep. Physiologically, things start to, to settle down. Your hearing's still going, so you can still be aroused at that stage. And we spend 20 to 25 minutes there. And then we move into what we call delta wave sleep, stages three and four. It's when the brain goes into that very slow, wavy pattern. So you've, you've basically got an inactive mind and still a veritable active body. So you can still twitch and still move around. After about 90 minutes of these processes, you then start to drop into what is REM sleep, which is that dream phase sleep, Yeah which is very, very important within uh, human survival. Mm-hmm. And then we cycle through that every 90 minutes or so. So you, you're going to have about five, six, seven periods of REM wow. during the night. What we tend to see in people with obstructive sleep apnea is that they'll start to snore at stage one, two. Stages three, four, they'll start to obstruct. Once they stop breathing, about six seconds later, their oxygen levels start to drop. We then get this sympathetic nerve activation that causes them to physiologically wake up. So their heart beats faster, their their blood pressure goes up. um, And it brings them back to a stage where the obstruction disappears, which may be level one, level two. But they're breaking deep deep sleep. Yeah. And and in a lot of cases, these patients don't get true REM periods. Pure sleep architecture is completely fragmented. And we're talking, I mean, I've seen people stop breathing I mean, over a hundred times an hour. Yeah, well, yeah, um, yeah. Which wow. means is that a heart rate variability is phenomenal during the night. Wow. So in effect, these people are working harder to sleep than they are to stay awake. <laughs> so of course, the, the body is a learning mechanism. It starts to say, "Well, I'm burning more energy doing this than I am by just staying awake." So people tend to start to develop this really bad sleep pattern where they can't get to sleep properly or they wake up frequently during the night. So, you mean, you mean sleep's really important for things like growth hormone production, yes. cortisol productions, all of these things. Um, your adrenals, your hormones. Yeah, they have very poor short-term memory. They're fatigued. Their blood pressure tends to be high. And, and you mean, eventually things are going to slide off. Yeah, and, and your health is going to seriously be affected. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. 
and this is this is so so important and, and just not you know what this sort of stuff needs to be taught at schools like what happens in the sleep process because we all just think we go to bed and we go to sleep and well, yeah. you know we don't know about deep sleep and REM sleep and, and the life stages of sleep and, and how how it actually affects our physiology the next day and how our brain function isn't going to work and what about the I read a study recently on the brain washing um function that happens when we're in a sleep and the brain shrinks okay. and the cerebral um, um, you're talking about yeah you're talking about amyloid beta yep. beta amyloid yeah which is a, and, yep, yep yeah the alzheimer's well, we, ones which is good when we're young because i think i mean this is getting into real neurophysiology so yeah, you have to excuse well, me because i'm a no, no, I love it. I long love time it. since it's i was so studying my this stuff. yeah yeah um so basically when you, you're growing or developing synapses it, it assists with that neurological function um but it's a, it's a byproduct of metabolism, of neurophysiological by metabolism, and needs to be washed out, um, which tends to happen during sleep. While you're asleep, this amyloid beta is dispersed, ready for the next day, so it washes out the brain. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Yep, it's a brainwash. That's what they're calling it. Yeah, yeah. They, 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 they flesh it out. Yep. It is an important uh, protein, so, but, but it fleshes out all the, the remnants. However, what we find with sleep apnea patients or insomniac patients and we're, uh, is that they don't fully do this. That, that's why they wake up feeling groggy uh, and... Cognitive and, decline. And, yeah, yeah, confused sometimes. Um, and it, we notice in Alzheimer's patients that there is a significant higher level of this within... These amyloid plaques. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that is an important function as well. And we can see that not just in sleep apnea, we can see that in insomniacs and people like that as well. Wow. Wow, that, that, that is fascinating. Yeah, and, and because if we're not washing out those plaques every day and getting rid of them as they, because they build up when we're awake, from what I understand. Yeah, 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 um, yeah, we're functioning, yeah. Yeah, then it starts to build up over time. And this, you know, over a period of 20 years can lead to, where they're suggesting it can lead to Alzheimer's. Um, early, early onset Alzheimer's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's a, it's a long, slow process. So if we can get it early, we can we can stop that process happening. Um, and, and, and this is really, this is the whole point of this conversation, Jez, is to get people to be aware of what are the signs of, of sleep apnea, what are the things that are going to happen when your sleep is off, um, yeah. and what we can do about it. Um, uh, you know, we referred um, just a bit earlier to mum's story um, and mum was <clears throat> in the hospital excuse me um, for three months and she'd been in Wellington uh, in the acute phase in the ICU and then in the neurological ward down there and she had been on supplemental oxygen um, when, when she came back through to New Plymouth she was taken off the supplemental oxygen because she was now stabilized if you like um, and I noticed that she was gone from terrible to really, really terrible. Like there was hardly any higher function going on at all. Um, and that's when my brain started to tick over. And, you know, my history with, you know, um, training at altitude and daily yeah, yeah. races at altitude. And I'd seen like things like she had uh, bacteria in the mouth that was just doing gross, horrible things. Sorry, yeah. yeah, and that was a, a really um, a signal to me like mm, bacteria, lack of oxygen, jizz. Uh, Sleep apnea <laughs> basically was the connection that I made there. Um, it, it, oxygen in the body, you know, a lack of oxygen causes bacteria to to spread and and proliferate. Um, yep. So it's really really important that we, we we address this. This is not something we should be putting off. So you then had a, a, in your clinics, you would do the sleep assessment on people, which is yep. an overnight um, uh, procedure or a test. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
and then if, if someone comes back with sleep apnea, they get a CPAP machine. Well, it depends, right? So first of all, the, the, the key to anyone is, is to acknowledge that they have a sleep issue. So the reason we, we can tell people have sleep issues is people always say, you know, I mean, I have a sleep problem, but during the day they still function as normal. Normally people with a true sleep problem don't function so well. So they're constantly fatigued, yeah, tired. Short-term memory is usually quite poor because they're not dreaming. And part of the process of dreaming is to burn information to a hard drive, if you like. So if you're not dreaming, you're not retaining that information. So short-term memory tends to disappear. There's fatigue. Quite often they're slightly on the higher blood pressure level. So, so they're the key things. Now, for sleep apnea, snoring's a, a definite. Yeah, you, if you're not snoring, it's not obstructive sleep apnea, but it could be upper airways resistance syndrome or something like that. So, in other words, you're having difficulty breathing during the night. Um, people often wake up for headaches. They often wake up during the night, um, maybe once or twice. Um, so these are sort of the common symptoms we see. I mean, but 70% of most GP consults will involve the word fatigue, yeah. tired, no energy. Yeah? Yep. So that should be your, your key indicator that you're feeling tired during the day. Yeah, most people come via their GPs because their GPs are becoming yeah. more and more aware of sleep Great. as a specific issue um, because we spend one third of the day doing it. Yeah. Um, we would then go through a simple questionnaire like a tiredness scale. Epworth sleepiness score is the, is the common tiredness scale that we use to address how tired or how affected people are during the day. And this involves eight simple questions uh, about the ability to fall asleep doing certain things. And I would have run this through with your mum. And basically it's things like if you sat reading a book, what's your chance of falling asleep? Yeah, not possible moderately high or high yep. yeah or, or sitting at traffic lights um you mean what's the chances of you falling asleep and believe it or not there are people who answer positively high oh, every question oh. i remember one person telling me in auckland that he said i said you know it's not very good if you're falling asleep at traffic lights and he said no. yeah but we can we can sit for 20 minutes at traffic lights <laughs> so, good point. so maybe we need to readdress it so the epworth sleepiness score is, is the most common questionnaire we use yep. to address tiredness. Um, then we would probably carry out, uh, for most people who complain of sleep, the first thing I think to do would be to carry out a very simple respiratory sleep study. And there's a couple of types you can do at home. There's oximetry, which purely looks at oxygen levels during your sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a little clip that you wear on your finger attached to a little monitor. Some are wireless. They go on little watches. And that's the simplest way. And it has a very good correlation to sleep apnea. So we can use it as a very simple, cheap test. Wow. Mm-hmm. There's then a, a level three sleep study, which looks at uh, uh, thoracic effort. So we're looking for specific obstructive central fibrin events or under-breathing, hypoventilations, with a nasal cannula, an oxygen saturation monitor, and they can be done at home. Yeah, they're very simple tests that can give us really detailed information. The level two sleep studies is when you're getting into neurophysiology side of sleep now 96 percent of sleep disorders are either respiratory mm-hmm. mostly but the very small percentage are the neurological disorders that we see the REM behavior disorders and um, the narcolepsies all of those they're the more complex disease states that really require much higher levels of, of acuity and testing right but the majority 
and that's in medicine what we're supposed to address. The majority of patients can be can be looked at from a respiratory perspective. Right. Yep. Um, once we get a test, we can then identify the severity of any underlying uh, respiratory problem. Now, let's talk about sleep, obstructive sleep apnea, which is where the airway physically closes during the night. Yep. We talk about mild, moderate, severe. Yeah, mild is any events above five to 15 events an hour. Then we talk about moderate, which is 15 to 30 events an hour. And anything over 30, we talk about severe sleep wow. apnea. Yeah. This scale is really more focused on funding of therapy no, than it no. is on impact of disease. That's terrible. <laughs> yeah. Well, we know that people with 30 tend to have a higher risk morbidity or, or mortality. Or, yeah. Yeah. But we yeah. also know that people with moderate, with other pathology, also have significant risks. But more and more evidence is saying that if you don't treat the mild, they will become exactly severe uh, but with all this morbidity related to it and this is the so, uh, ambulance at the bottom of the cliff problem that we have now. <laughs> it, it, it's like fun it, it always comes down to it funding, does. It comes down to funding not how healthy you're going to be not optimization <laughs> <laughs> which is why this show exists <laughs> so so you'll be basically that's that's sleep apnea yeah obstructive sleep apnea obstructive sleep apnea can be treated yeah that's the good thing what we talk about is things like conservative measures. Conservative measures are always going to be things like weight loss, yep. yeah, fitness levels, because yep. obviously the fitter you are, the thinner you are in, in the majority of cases. Yes. Um, so those are, those are simple things you can do to help. However, the research is not brilliant about it yeah? yep. um, for outcomes. And then we're moving more into the surgical options. Obviously, you've got the weight-related surgery, which is very difficult, the bariatric surgery yep. um, to get. Quite often, we look at the upper airway as mm -hmm. being part of this mechanism that's causing the issue. And there's things like the obvious nasal deviations that we could, we, well, you can see the obvious uh -huh. ones from rugby players, but obviously there are also... Noses. Yep. Yeah, there's also subtle deviations. Uh -huh. Then there's things within the nasal pathway that can cause problems, oh. the adenoids, right. and even your tonsils. Now, tonsils is a controversial area yep. in the area of sleep medicine yep. because tonsils are something that's supposed to atrophy or disappear as we get older. Oh, real? Oh. Yeah. Um, however, saying that, I mean, I, the, the conversations I have with GPs about this is quite interesting because being in this field, I constantly look at tonsils in everybody or look at the back of the throat because I'm looking at, at what we call a malampathy index, which is how far back the larynx sits uh -huh. and the size of the tongue. Um, but also I'm looking at tonsils. And quite frequently you'll see extremely large asymptomatic tonsils in mature males predominantly. Wow. So if you've got tonsils that are kissing but asymptomatic which means you don't get tonsillitis as such yep. then they're going to be causing an issue wow. in the upper airway so sometimes yeah yeah well in children now uh, for, for, for sleep disorders um the first line of therapy in children who might snore snoring to all the parents out there in children is not it's not cute no it's not cute any noise from a child while they sleep um is not cute because they're supposed to be perfect breathers yeah yep. But the first line of therapy now in children with 
with snoring or anything like that is they just take out, they don't bother with sleep studies, they just take out the tonsils and the abdomens, which in a significant number of cases can improve it. And there was a study out of the States where they took uh, patients, children diagnosed, I think it was ADHD, trying to remember this study. Yeah. And what they did was uh, they took this group of patients who were all treated, removed tonsils and adenoids, and what they found was that 50% of them, I think it was 50%, ended up being taken off their Ritalin medication. Wow. Because it was high, children react differently to tiredness than adults. Adults, yep. we, get, we get lethargic, we get morose. Children get hyperactive when they're tired. And we wow. see that because they, everyone who knows you have kids, yeah. they go ballistic <laughs> and then they crash. Yeah, yeah? exactly. Because um, yeah. what they are is tired. Yeah, so when they get tired, they, they sundown like they run around and they, and they, they speed go for up it. and then they crash. Yeah. <laughs> so surgery, surgery can help in some cases with obvious deformities. Um, success rate surgery for sleep apnea in the mild to moderate, probably about 63%. Wow. And surgery, like anything, carries risk, risk yeah. from anesthetics from the surgery itself. So it's not a guaranteed mm-hmm. cure. Then we're moving into things like mouse guards. Uh, mandibular splints they're designed to hold the jaw in a uh-huh. permanent position so yep. pulling the pulling the tongue away from the back of the throat because yep. as you fall asleep nobody can physically swallow their tongue yeah but their tongues can drop back and occlude the airway yeah that's why in, in recess we pull the jaw forward if you pull the jaw forward you'll pull the tongue away from the back uh-huh. of the throat making mm-hmm. that a larger space um mandibular splints can work very well um, there's different types. There's over-the-counter, not so successful, but right. the ones designed by uh, specialist orthodontists, of which there are a number now in the country, um, can have an 80-plus percent success really? rate. It can wow. be very good. I'm thinking um, Cyril here, Jez. Because <laughs> <laughs> I can't get him on a CPAP machine, but I probably might be able to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so so most guys work very well. Okay, yeah. Um, for more mild cases and some moderates, there's a thing called microvalve therapy, therapy, Theravents. These are the things you stick little plasters over your nose. Yep. And what they do is you breathe in normally through lots of holes, but as you breathe out through your nose, lots of the valves close down and yep. one valve remains open. So you get like a what we call a valsolda effect, like mm-hmm. blowing through mm-hmm. your nose. And that back pressure yep. keeps the airway splinted open. Wow. So it's a physiological form of CPAP, which is what uh-huh. you were yeah, moving which is, towards before. Yeah, yeah, which is what mum's got. And so yes. this is a, like a, a, a sticking plaster that you see some athletes no. wearing, or is it on the inside? No, no, that's no, no. On the, 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 the strips on the outside are for anatomical, for, for collapse, yeah, right. for where the airway starts to collapse. So those things pull the nose Outwards. Slightly outwards, yeah. These things stick over the nares, over the holes here. Oh. Yeah. They're, they're interesting to work with. Very interesting feeling. Um, <laughs> but they can work. Problem with those is they're an ongoing cost. You've got to use them every day. If you don't right. use them, You'll the snoring comes back. Yeah. yeah. So they're quite expensive. Right. Um, but as an alternative to CPAP. There's also this tongue device. I don't think you tongue the stabilizing device, the TSD. No. no. Very bizarre looking device that basically works upon the fact that if your tongue falls back, you pull your tongue forward. Now, in the old days, very old days of anesthesia, we used to have a thing called a tongue clip that we could 
clip the tongue and pull it out to to open up the airway. Um, We've moved on from there. This is a TSD is like a suction device that you squeeze, stick your tongue in, and it sucks your tongue forward. Yeah. They're relatively cheap. Some people swear by them. I've tried most of these things. I couldn't sleep with it. Yeah, this is the problem. But it is, it is an option. It is an option to try. The only thing guaranteed to reverse sleep apnea, yeah, or, or it is CPAP, what we call continuous positive airway pressure. Yeah. And it basically, in simple terms, is a pneumatic splint. So it blows air into the airway via either a nasal mask or a full, or full face mask. mask. Yep while you're asleep um, you can get very little cushions now that, that you wear like oxygen things that can also be used with this machine um, and that blows air in so when you breathe out you're breathing out against pressure so that then holds the airway open yeah it's a pneumatic process mm-hmm. so you breathe in and out against this flow all night that if you can wear it is guaranteed to reverse obstructive sleep apnea yeah it's gold standard for therapy and interestingly enough it's only been around since about 1982 it's a relatively new uh, therapy but is now widely used worldwide for the treatment i mean that's the one that mum's got um and she has to wear it every night and all night um and you know it's quite an invasive thing to have on it's not pleasant for her um with her having uh, the central uh, sleep apnea is that guaranteed in that case like with obstructive or is it a bit of bit more it really depends upon that the 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 reasoning behind the central event yeah um in most cases it it can improve it to an extent that it's okay um in some cases it doesn't but we stop an, an obstructive component it improves yeah. the physiology Yep. So the, the, so chain stoking, the, the chain staking will go away. There are some machines that are specifically designed to treat certain types of breathing, like chain stokes, the ASB system. Mm-hmm. Um, that can only be used. There are certain, a very small group of patients who can't use ASB because the, the, there's a higher risk of problems. Right. Like with any therapy, you know, there's always risk. CPAP yep. tends to be generally safe if yep. used appropriately in the, in the right patients. Um, and there are then machines that will provide backup breaths. So if the machine senses that you're not breathing, it doesn't ventilate you, but it, it reminds you to take a breath. Yeah. So we can use things called bilevels or bilevel STs with, with a, a minimum respiratory re- required. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. it will, it will, if you stop breathing, it'll like poke you with air to say, take yeah. a breath. Yeah, is that the machine that Mum's got? You know, because it, it, um, I think it, it, I think it, it might, regulates. Yeah, yeah. So it regulates when she's breathing. It's yeah. low setting. Yeah, yeah. And then when she stops breathing in the middle of the night, you'll hear yeah. the machine crank up. Yeah, your your mum's on a on an auto type ventilator, uh, auto type machine. Yeah, with a backup rate. Yeah, right. And and this is as similar to what a ventilator is in the hospital. <laughs> Not quite. We, we, <laughs> That's a complicated C, question. C, CPAP is not ventilation. Yeah. Okay. CPAP, CPAP is strapping a reverse vacuum cleaner to your nose and away you go. Yeah. yeah. It's 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 helping, it's not breathing for you. It's like a walking stick. It's okay. making your breathing more effective than if you weren't using it. Yeah. Yep. 
And a ventilator? And, and a ventilator is physically breathing for you. Now, there are wow. two types of ventilators. So there's invasive ventilation or there's non-invasive ventilation. Non-invasive ventilation is like a CPAP, but basically the, the pressures are split. So you breathe in at one pressure and you breathe out at another pressure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there is a there can be a backup rate added to that. So that's that's termed as non-invasive ventilation. Those are the ones we tend to see used on patients with hyperventilation syndrome, yeah, or a, a severely large patient who cannot tolerate high levels of CPAP. Yep. Because you know, I mean breathing against a pressure of 10 centimeters may not be as bad, but the minute you start to get to 16, 18 I mean, centimeters of pressure. That's a hurricane blowing in your nose. Yeah, and that's not um, nice. Yeah, so then we need hard. to look at how we, we change. So we have an inspiratory pressure and expiratory pressure, non-invasive ventilation. So in any form of respiratory failure, uh, which is the, the end game of, of some disease states, they work really, really well. Wow. And it's becoming more and more used as opposed to um, inter, in, in, invasive ventilation. In a lot of cases, now I've just read some reports out from COVID. Yeah. They're starting to look at, non-invasive ventilation as an alternative right problem with non-invasive ventilation is you airlines um, the, oh the, 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 the COVID yeah oh, yeah so you've got to be really careful and you don't with the a normal with the other ventilator it's sort no. Of oh, no. It anything that air, no CPAP's not recommended in COVID patients anyway even though it's starting to be used yeah wow. as an alternative but needs to be used very carefully yeah, oh. and, and um, we've got. Um, uh, I've been looking at the research, of course, because Jez and I had a hyperbaric uh, oxygen clinic, uh, which we opened after Mum's story, and we've since unsold. Um, but the hyperbaric and COVID um, is showing promising results. Uh, watched yeah, the video from Dr. Harch yeah, yeah, yesterday. Yeah, I, I saw. I saw that. Yeah, yeah. but I mean, the issue, the issues with with COVID probably we just don't know. Um, no. it, we're in the infancy of a disease state that. We don't know what the long-term benefits, risks, outcomes, and you mean next ten years, twenty years of research is going to be around the last last yeah. three months of world. world what what the hell's happened to us? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so we'll keep on sleep apnea because I think that's a less controversial yeah, it's a complex. Yeah, very true. But yeah, so 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 treatment for sleep apnea with with CPAP is very very common. It's it's effective. Um, we really started to look at mild disease as well because what we notice with patients with mild disease they can still suffer all the same problems as severe disease they can still be slightly hypertensive or difficult to control they can still be difficult to control diabetics they can still suffer um, extreme daytime tiredness um, and things like that so so CPAP can be used as a management tool from mild to severe Yep. So we were one of the first groups that probably made it more available to the mild yeah. cases because, in our opinion, the benefits fired outweighed any yeah. risks associated with treatment. Yeah. Um, and at the end of the day, I mean, therapy of any kind should be the decision of the patient. Yes. Not absolutely agree. Always the practice. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> um, agree. <laughs> depending on what that treatment is, of yes. course. Yeah. Um, and something like CPAP, yeah, that I don't see that there was is a very low risk with a high reward. Yeah. Um, and in medicine, that's what we're looking for. Yeah. Um, is, so, is there any difference between when you were say um, I was reading a sleep thing study uh, last week, sleeping on your side versus sleeping on your back? 
Uh, and can you actually sleep? And this is a question yeah. after I read that. I was because mum sleeps on, on her back all the time because of the sleep app machine. Uh, is she actually able to sleep on the side? Yeah, of course she is. The machine she's got will automatically adjust for any change in pressure, so it'll go up or down as required. Yeah, um, that's the benefits of that type yep. of machine. Yeah, that, that algorithm. Um, look, positional sleep. Yes, you can talk to any partner who has suffered a partner who snores after a glass of wine or beer or whatever. Yeah. You always poke them to roll them onto their side. So yes. positional treatment for snoring can work, and it's one of the conservative measures uh, we recommend. You know, I mean, there are very fancy machines out there that are designed to, to be worn around the neck um, and to tell when you're starting to snore, and then it buzzes you with little electric shocks to turn you on your side. Wow. <laughs> The, the, the most practical tool you've got for, for positional sleep apnea is what your grandmother would have used to have said, which is either sew a button in the back of your pyjamas or get a tennis ball with a loop of elastic, thread it through and wear it like a backpack. And that wow. will physiologically keep, keep you, you on your on side. Your side. Wow. Because there's no doubt that we can see severe sleep apnea on the back because all this yeah. pressure now is pushing down yeah. on their side all that is moved away from, especially on the left side. Wow. If you turn onto your left, it's easier to breathe. That's why in the recovery ah. position, we turn people to their left. Wow. Um, Good tip. It I removes pressure it. On, their, on their venous return, uh-huh. helps improve blood pressure, but it also moves the tongue and everything away from, from where your trachea is. So and the weight clear. on the because um you know, I, prefer, I sleep on my side. When I sleep on my left, I can always feel my own heartbeat. And then I always get worried I'm putting pressure on my heart, like no. turn over if, to the other side. <laughs> if, anything, if anything, it would probably be more on the right, because that's why we talk about pregnant women with their yes. gravid uterus. If you, if you lie on your side, that weight comes on to the vena cava on, ah. on, on the right side. So actually restricts blood flow, especially return. Wow. Yeah. So your blood pressure theoretically needs to be higher. So we, we in medicine, we tend to turn people onto their onto left the side. side. And especially wow. pregnant women, we always say, lie left. on your left side, not wow. on your right side. Great tip. <laughs> so, so positional sleep, yeah, can work very, very well. In those people who are purely snorers, yeah. Yeah, it may slightly improve sleep apnea, but because of all the other factors involved it's not always a, a key but a sleep study can tell us that because part of the sleep study tells us which side the patient is sleeping on when apneas are happening yep and we can we can see that so we can recommend positional therapy what about like um i know with uh cyril and he'll probably have a have a crack at me for t- talking about him <laughs> on the podcast <laughs> but I, I push he yeah he sleeps on his back um, and he sleeps on the couch mostly. So he wants to sit. I, I sit him up higher with pillows up um, in behind him, and then his snoring is a lot less. Yeah, if you're lying flat, yeah, it's okay to raise the head of the bed slightly. Uh-huh. If you're going to raise the head of the bed, it's always better to put the pillow under the mattress as opposed to under your head. Oh. Because the biggest problem with people who put them under their heads is it will tilt their head forward and make this more obstructed. Oh. If you want to put it under yourself, and put it under your shoulder so your head sits Slightly more back. flexed. Or oh. sniffing the morning air is the <laughs> position we used to call it in anesthesia. Oh. Um, so the head is flexed back, straightens the airway, and it's easier to breathe. Uh, sleeping in a chair 
is not a cool thing because you're not going <laughs> to you're not so going to sleep you're not going to sleep as well, especially in patients who let's say have respiratory problems, COPD. Um, they've got what we call um, overlap syndrome, so they've got sleep apnea and COPD. Um, they tend to sleep in chest because they feel they can breathe easier. Yeah. The problem is, is it's not very good for you from a health perspective to be oh. sleeping sat up. Yeah. Oh. Because of venous return and pressure on the kidneys and the heart and other things. Probably blood flow to the brain. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if people are sleeping in chest because they find it easier to sleep, then they really need to be assessed <sighs> uh, to find out why. Right. I've got another yep. battle on my hands coming up, I can see. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for, for a number of reasons. Look, sleep apnea, I mean, interestingly enough, we talked about it being you mean, related to obesity and other disease states, but it's also predominantly higher in men than in women mm-hmm. up, to about the, up to about the age of 50. So postmenopausal women catch up to men very fast with sleep right. apnea. And uh-huh. it tends to be, the effects of it tend to be worse than we see on men. Um, is that the weight gain side of what happens it's, after it's because of the loss the... of certain hormones in postmenopausal women especially around respiratory type wow. um, issues um, we tend to see it more in Maori men yeah. especially but yeah. also a higher percentage so, so there is a, a ethnic link yep. we're not sure if that's because of body habitus to the, so yep. the shape of the body in the upper airway rather than BMI. just being rather yeah. usually so, there's a, so it's yeah. working out whether it's the increased weight the, the, the shorter neck things like yeah. that so yeah so you I mean there is there should be a definite and i think there is a definite push within maori them to check sleep apnea if you've ever been onto a marae at night yeah it's it terrible sings, do not it, do it it seems in not a, po- a positive way <laughs> no. um, so you mean and, and probably one of the best places to, to have a sleep person would be on a marae yeah, absolutely. Very quickly identify. And, and this is why, you know, sharing this sort of information so that people can directly, because as with all, you know, all the health stuff that I talk about, um, you know, it, it's being informed. It's knowing yeah. that this stuff is out there. It's being aware that there is a, perhaps a problem that needs to be checked is the first line of getting people in the door. You well, know? Look, I mean, if you want to look statistically around research, you know, I mean, you are three times more likely to have a stroke if you have sleep apnea. You're three times more likely to die if you have sleep apnea. Wow. You're significantly more likely to develop diabetes if you have sleep, or especially what we call uncontrolled diabetes. Yeah. Um, you're more likely to develop heart problems, wow. more likely to develop respiratory problems. I mean, and we're talking significant percentages. If you look at something like what we call labile hypertension, so blood pressure that is difficult to control, 80% of patients with difficult to control blood pressure will have some varying level of sleep disordered breathing. Yeah. 55% of cardiac patients, especially AF patients, will have a compounding or causative sleep disordered breathing. Yep. So the numbers start to stack up. Um, more and more and more we're looking at nighttime physiology as a as a predictor for daytime Um, especially around things like blood pressure 24-hour blood pressure now is something that's becoming standard practice because we've historically treated blood pressure on one-off clinic yeah pressures yeah Yeah. um when we're noticing that nocturnal hypertension is a better predictor of cardiovascular mortality and morbidity than daytime blood pressure wow so, okay. so more and more GPs now are moving towards 24-hour blood hour pressure. Tracking. And how do yeah. you get, you know, you, you go to your GP and you ask for a 24-hour yeah. well, There are a few GPs. Pressure. 
yeah, there's a few GPs in town who will do 24 hours. Most of the GPs will refer into somewhere like this clinic where we're doing quite yeah. a few 24-hour blood pressures and halter monitoring because my area of special interest has always been the impact of sleep on, on cardiovascular disease yes. or, or on, on cardiac health, which was why I've sort of moved into the- sideways into more cardiorespiratory physiology than I was sleep. So tell um, us about a little bit about the clinic that you're in now, Fast-Paced Solutions, which is based in New Plymouth. For anybody who wants to talk to Jez and come and see you guys, what is it that you do? You showed me a, a, a machine before that you can yeah. actually wear. Yeah. So basically, look, we moved sideways, and I teamed up with two other guys, Mike Maxim, who's a cardiac physiologist, and Alan Thompson, who's a who's an anaesthetic technologist. And we, we looked at what we could provide to primary care, as a, as a midway step between primary medical care and secondary medical care. So we sort of set up to say to GPs, look, wow. we, can, we can provide these tests a lot faster probably because we have less restrictive pr- process, yeah? Um, and so we're doing things like halter monitoring. Halter monitoring is, is monitoring the heart over a 24, 48, seven-day period, depending on, on what we're looking for. And basically monitors cardiac beat-to-beat variations. So it's great for identifying arrhythmias, dysrhythmias, AFA flutter, all of those conditions. Uh, atrial fibrillation is something we're seeing more and more of um, and is yep. potentially a significantly life-threatening condition, if not picked up and managed because yep. um, of the increased risk of stroke and things like that. Um, so... We brought in a more, and also we're seeing a higher demand from people wearing wearable technology yep. who have started to notice their heartbeats changing, going faster, slightly out of beat, yeah, because they're exerting and it causes concern. And part of medicine is to address concern and fear. So we do, we do halter monitoring. So we're using small halter, but like monitors that allow us to monitor patients in a more free fashion. The old ones used to have lots of wires yeah. that restrict things. These things you can run, cycle. Wow. Yeah. So they're great for people who are active because that's where they notice the problem. So if we can monitor the patient in the situation in which they notice the problem, it's a lot more effective. Yeah. The older, bigger ones are cumbersome, so you can't run in them, cycle, mm. swim, and you, you can with these. Yeah. Um, so it allows us to monitor patients more effectively. And we can even do cardiac ones on neonatal so we can get really tiny patches. Wow. Yeah. So we do those. We do exercise tolerance testing to check for uh, narrowing of vessels. So it's a, a, a test that you run on a treadmill and we look at your ECG, 12-lead ECG, so quite an in-depth ECG while you're doing it. Wow. Um, we do ambulatory blood pressure, 24-hour monitoring. Mm-hmm spirometry because that forms part of the cardiac paradigm i mean we talk about cardiorespiratory disease because they both obviously work together and they affect each other yeah Um, so that's what we're doing here we're doing more direct to patient management are you working with um athletes optimizing performance we we get a lot of athletes come through um because they're the ones who who notice a change yeah? yeah and they just want to be reassured that what they're feeling is not a problem, yep. uh, which is fine. 
yeah, and we, optimizing we performance and we optimi- as well. Yeah, optimize performance. Yeah, we're, we're and doing I, you know, a lot of. Um, uh, I've got a few colleagues, you know, have been doing you know ultra marathon stuff for years, and they've got oversized hearts um, as a yeah. result. Okay, of, yeah, that's exercise induced cardiomyopathy. Yeah, um, it's not very common. But it, it, we do see it in some patients who have been exercising to an extreme over a yeah. prolonged period. I mean, it's it, any muscle that that you you can overwork can become hypertrophic. You know, I mean, that's the whole point of bodybuilding. Yeah, yeah, we we, we damage and tear muscle to develop def- definition, and we see that in things like you know, I mean, um, in insomniacs with their with their cortisol levels. They're a highly stressed person. He can yeah. get adrenal atrophy. Adrenal, from yeah, adre- atrophy, yeah. hypertrophy. Yeah, um, yeah, from that because you're constantly kicking out high levels of cortisol, which is why they can't sleep. Yep. Um, and it's all at the wrong time of day. So, I mean, that's yeah, exercise-induced cardiac conditions are not common, but but um, there's something we can check for. Yeah, and probably more common amongst people I hang out with. <laughs> 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 something that's been yeah you know that it's not common i i don't have it um but i yeah my my ex-husband used to have that that problem um been exercising for just you know huge amounts for many many years um and it's mostly men isn't it that, that, it that is mostly men it yeah. is mostly men but they're giving it's like with rugby players and that it's it'd be interesting to look at their sleep at the same time yeah, yeah? because and that's why we've moved this way because sleep hearts lungs all work together and this is, for, this is for what a good I, or a bad reason. Yeah, I mean, this is something that I've been, you know, trying to educate people on, you know, like the difference between, um, you know, like functional medicine and allopathic medicine and the need for more integrated and a more integrated look at the whole person and not just uh, well, you're in lungs and you're in the heart and you're in the, you, you study the brain and you study the kidneys, but having people that can look at the whole sort of system or systems within the body that can yeah. really take a, a more holistic or overlooking approach yeah look i think you I mean one of the issues we face in any form of healthcare is the fragmentation of the system yeah in that we are so busy these days that predominantly we only look at the field in which we are specialized so much information whereas you I mean you sit at the gp level you've got to try and work out so you're a policeman, if you like, or a police yeah. person, trying to work out which way you need Where to go. So mm. it's very difficult when you send someone, let's say, for a heart test because you think it's a cardiac issue and the test comes back, not a cardiac issue. But that doesn't help you. All it's told you is, is that it's not that? a cardiac <laughs> So you send them off. <laughs> what we're trying to develop probably more so here is to, to look at the patient that's been referred for a heart problem and maybe just looking a bit wider and saying, well, look, if it's if it's not your heart, we should be looking at your sleep. Or if it's not your sleep, we should be looking at other physiology. Um, and trying to give a more uh, packaged answer to a, to a, yeah. a provider saying, well, no, we've done a halter, it's fine. However, they mentioned they snored and we noticed that they have yep. moderate and sleep. And having that here. sort of overview yep. a little bit wider. I mean, obviously, you can't be an expert in the mechanics of the feet at the same time as being, you know, no. uh, doing what you're doing. But, you know, because it it's it something that used to occur, I think, long time ago when we were a much smaller population. People could have more time as a specialist to, to look at all areas of healthcare. But obviously, as, as 
that the health system that was invented back then didn't take into account that we'd now be a population of five million yeah. um, with significant ability to study more areas of healthcare. So a lot of the people who are in specialties are just overwhelmed yep. um, with that specialty. And what we we'll probably need to be doing more of is having a step that allows people to look more broadly yep. at health. And that may include, as you said, homeopathic yep. or, or alternate providers yep. because we're treating Functional people as medicine. opposed to just purely disease. Yeah, yep. go and get into the most, root, root cause. Most practitioners, I think, health or otherwise would agree with that. That, that it's everything should be more patient focused as opposed to outcome and this is where i think focused. it's really important to have educational programs like this one because it, it does take the pressure off the gp knowing everything about everything if you're aware of what's out there and what could possibly be going on and some of the you know synergistic um you know comorbidities that can exist you know like i'm doing a, a brain re- rehabilitation course that i'm doing at the moment um to help people and the 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 interrelatedness from whether it's looking it's not a good word but you know what i mean um from brain injury and hormones or adrenal insufficiency and hypertrophism and thyroid um they can all be affected through brain injury um and then um the knock-on effects of those and the signs and, and symptoms and things. That, so I always look at, within the course, I'm building out what's the foundational aspects of good health, you know, some of the basics around hydration and nutrition and um, sleep, um, and then looking at the next layer to, to be addressed because there's no use me giving you or giving you a, uh, telling you to go and have a hyperbaric session, which will help your brain which we know it has beneficial things for neurological um, yeah. problems. When you're eating fish and chips every night and, you know, got, got some underlying other problems and, and not exercising and not doing the other pieces of the puzzle. So we need to have um, an approach that looks at how do I build some foundational health basics for starters as well as addressing the actual problem that we've got on top of it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You I mean, I think... I mean, if I could say anything as a key to what we've been talking about is, is, is we take what happens during the day very seriously, but health should be a, a wider conversation. I mean, sleep is important. Not every reason you can sleep is insomnia. Yeah. So tablets don't always fix mm. sleep issues. Mm. They're a great tool in the exactly. toolbox, One but tool. can actually be more <laughs> problematic than the issue. Um, so that's the main thing. It, it means to, it's the, snoring is not good. If I could get that point across, yes. And if if you don't think you sleep well, which is probably majority of population at the moment, yeah. <laughs> um, just check that out. I just can't. I'm sorry. I'm, I probably sounded a bit garbled, but sleep is such a huge area. Yeah. Um, to try and look at sleep in its entirety is is quite a difficult area. I mean, the simple ones are sleep apnea, snoring tiredness during the day um no matter how old you are snoring is not good yeah um doesn't matter whether you're male female adult kid get it checked yeah and it's a simple case of just talking to your your practitioner especially if you've got other conditions related to it yeah um and 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 look at uh yeah your sleep health as as importantly as you do your your daytime health exactly that's probably a key 
that's a key takeaway. And I think, you know, go and get yourself assessed. Go and find out if you if you think you have a problem. Uh, if someone you know has had a, a stroke, um, I mean, I, I, I think it should be standard practice uh, for everybody who's had a, a brain injury to get yep. some sort of sleep assessment done at some level. Um, yep. You know, I, I'm I'm absolutely convinced my mum would wouldn't be here if we hadn't done that, and then subsequently also hyperbaric was a, a key factor in in her success. Um, so obviously very passionate about sharing this message today. Um, Jess, just as we wrap up, um, so we've take, we've given people a couple of takeaways. You know, if they're snoring, do something about it. If you if you're feeling absolutely in the gutter uh, and not getting good night's sleep. If you're waking up a number of times, uh, we've said about sleeping on the side, perhaps on the left yep. side is, is, is really ideal. Uh, weight loss is really important if you're obese. Um, you need to be taking this seriously. There's a lot of comorbidities that, that come along with having sleep apnea, and it can be a bit of a, of a uh, what do you call it? A circle that a leads feeds, circle. A, a vicious circle that leads into each other. Um, so I think there are some really really key takeaways. And from the cardiac perspective, I'm very keen to come and check out what what you guys are doing there at, at your new clinic. Um, yep. And um, relay that back as well. Um, I think uh, having these new facilities and this new technology available to us is just absolutely awesome. Um, and there's so many great things happening in so many different areas of medicine that we, you know, just sharing a bit of information about it is really key. So if anybody uh, wants to reach out to you at the clinic, where can they find you guys? Okay, so, I mean, you can do the usual webpage, uh, Um You can call us. We do have a, self, uh, a phone number, but as you notice, I don't answer that often. <laughs> Fast-paced <laughs> solutions. So I'll put that in the in the show notes so yeah, people can, yeah. so, can reach so out. We're available on Google. Most of the GPs in town know where we are, as do the specialists at the hospital, because we're obviously working very closely with the hospital. They're, they're supporting us in, in that, so that's really good. Um, with regards to your mum, I just like to say, I mean, from, from a medical perspective, I'm pretty stunned at the way your mum's recovering. I, I, I have to sort of put my hand on my heart as, as a medical person when I first went through it with you i thought uh, yes. I, I wasn't positive no, um nobody but, was <laughs> but it's not purely that the sleep or anything like that I, i've got to acknowledge that what you and your family put in to that was phenomenal yeah it, it really was um and i think you need to take a little bit more credit with you and your boys <laughs> your brothers um and it gave your dad a reason to come and do my garden, which was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he, loved, he loved that too. He's, he's missing you, um, actually. <laughs> so I tell him to give you a call any time. Yeah, so do, do take some credit for that. It, oh, it thank purely you. wasn't a medical outcome. It was a no, family-based it, it, outcome. It's a, it's a multi-faceted approach. And, you know, mm. I always look at the, the silver linings and things, Jez, and when I, when, when, when I went through this horrible situation with mum, there were people like you, and others who came out of the woodwork and all gave me their expertise in that area that I was searching in, and I was hungry for help and information. And that that having that open mindedness and being able to research, and I continue to do it, has now led to a complete new profession. You know, um, yeah. it's interesting where you end up, and in a book that I hope is going to uh, empower other people to fight like crazy. I mean, there was. You know, we were given no hope from from the hospital. We were told to put her in a rest home and she won't be with us very long. And 
Um, you know, mum is getting stronger still today. Every day she's improving. Like it's it's quite a and at the age of seventy eight, and you know, we, we she had a a few you know underlying issues. Uh, obviously, that's why she had the aneurysm and the stroke. Um, and I, I still battle with her on the nutrition side of things, but um, I'm the daily police on that. But now she's, you know, fully got a full driver's license. She's fully independent. The last thing last week, Des, she's now got, she's now even able to put her own shoes on, which was the last thing because her, her flexibility, of course, was really poor. She's now even managed to do that. She's doing weights every day in the in the garage with me at the moment because we can't go to the gym. And she's a, she's a little miracle, but she... You know, I'm not. Uh, I'm. The, I'm not the one in the million, and Mum's not the one in the million. What's what is different about this case is the relentlessness of keeping going and looking for answers outside of the the the, the, the square, basically. Yeah. You mean again? I think you should take credit because I think t- sometimes using the term miracle, it would it would dif- suggest yeah. divine intervention. <laughs> this was this was the this was the determination of Fano. It were. Yeah. Really uh, to get a positive outcome. Yeah, we love our mum. It shows us sometimes that we just need to step back and, and engage more with, with the wider family unit. Um, yep. Yeah, do take some credit, please. Thank you very much, Jess. It really means a lot coming from you because, um, again, without your expertise in bring you know in, in the in the hyperbaric that we that we did as a clinic yeah. together, which was difficult times and a hard thing, but I was desperate to get this therapy out there into the world and you know we did that and we you know have made more people aware and um people are still coming to me every day to learn about hyperbaric so you know we did our job there mm-hmm. um and it, it all has there you know there is beautiful things that have come out of a tragedy and uh, that's the way i see everything in life now is to try and say well, where is the learning so even in this covid situation that we're all finding ourselves in and the chaos it is about um where can I learn something out of this? What can I benefit from this? How can society benefit from this? And and we're going to come out changed, but we're going to come out stronger if we have that that mindset. Yeah, totally okay. agree. Thank you so much for, for everything, for helping me all along the way. And um, I can't wait to come out down and see your new clinic. Well, just give me a shout. Give me a shout when you're ready. Fantastic. That's it this week for Pushing the Limits. Be sure to rate, review and share with your friends. And head over and visit Lisa and her team at lisatarmaty.com.